privacy please people thank you so much for listening to us every single week gabe and i are just so thrilled to have all these special guests on learning about privacy and security and we couldn't be more thrilled to share that story and journey with you just wanted to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for you for paying attention every single week and please share with your friends your family anyone you think that could benefit from learning and uh, we're just excited to continue this journey so stay with us we're going to keep this going are you guys ready for the show i certainly am here we go Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I am your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me as always, Gabe Gums. How you doing, Gabe? Doing good. Uh, good. It looks like you're in uh, Mars or something over there, or, or maybe San Francisco. Yeah. San Francisco, yeah. Hopefully they're doing okay over there. <laughs> uh, today we have a very special episode. Uh, we have Jane Durden. She is the VP Law Firm Strategy at Anaqua. Jane, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. I feel like I didn't get the message about a fancy shirt and some sort of fancy background, but see you next time. <laughs> it is the Zoom world that we live in. Uh, we get to try to make our at-home uh, offices look way more cooler than they are. So thanks for coming on. And let's, let's just start the show off with please just kind of introducing yourself to the listeners and telling us where you came from. Um, you can tell us where you came from as a little girl or, you know, just how you got to where you are at Anakwa. You might need that cup of coffee. Okay. Um, so look, as you can <laughs> tell from the accent, I'm originally from Australia, but um, came to the States around 20 years ago. And um, I am by trade what I call a recovering trademark attorney. Um, trained as a lawyer, worked as a lawyer, worked in law firms. And then for the last um, about eight years, I've been working for legal service providers. Um, so these are a growing area in our industry, basically looking at technology, support services and innovation to help lawyers really sort of shift and change uh, with, with the changing industry. So I work for Anaco, which is the leading provider of technology for intellectual property lawyers. That's inside corporations, and so we've got large customers that work with all of the big patent filers around the world and with their law firms, and that's what I focus on. Um, so I, basically my job is to help make their lives easier, uh, whether it's by looking at automation of processes, whether it's by just making things simpler, giving them access to things on a tablet or a phone or getting them out working with their clients or by supplementing their teams with other teams that can help give them extra breadth, so extra capability and extra capacity. That's a lot of fun because I basically get to go back and help organisations that I used to work for do things that I would dearly have loved them to have done when I was working for them. And um, I now get to go and play with other people's businesses. It's fun. Awesome. So let's let's kind of start up with, you know, just a simple question. How much do you run into privacy concerns and how much do you deal with privacy and security right now? Basically all the time. And as we were saying before, if we take privacy as just confidentiality or restriction of, of access to information, it is absolutely critical to the nature of 
of what it is that we do. So really briefly, intellectual property is the protection of, of non-real property of, of the, you know, the product of people's minds um, and helping them monetize that or protect uh, against the use of that by others. And so that's basically the areas of patents, trademarks, copyright, trade secrets, domain names is a newer area as well. Um, and inherent in the protection of intellectual property in some, not all jurisdictions, there are any lawyers watching, you please forgive my fairly broad strokes, um, but in, inherent in most jurisdictions is the idea that when you come to file for protection, you're filing for something that people have, have not heard of before. So the, there's an inherent requirement that you need to keep that information private, confidential, before you file it. When you file for a patent at the United States Patent and Trademark Office, what you're actually doing is doing a bit of a trade. You're saying, I'm going to describe the meets and bounds of the patent, of the invention, and in exchange, I'm going to get an exclusive right to use it, to sell it, to license it, to not do anything with it, actually, in exchange for a monopoly over a period of time, which is called the grant of the patent or the period of grant. And in um, exchange for that, what I'm doing is I'm giving that information at the end of that to the public for the benefit of the community. So a good example, right, uh, pharmaceuticals right now, um, you know, there are multiple groups working on a COVID vaccine. That in itself is a patentable invention. Um, the, the, you know, the way that vaccine will work will be a patentable invention. Whether they file it or not is, is one thing. They'd be given an exclusive right over the period of the grant, which can be all in all sort of start to finish about 20 years. And at the end of that time, that information is completely available to the public. And that's when you start to see things like generic drugs, and other companies being able to use that patentable technology because it's come off grant. Um, but but in, in the meantime, the concept of privacy and confidentiality and restriction of access to information is actually really, really critical. Now, when you add on top of that, the fact that I work with law firms, you've got one extra little piece of a wrinkle. Um, if you're the owner of a patent, you've got some requirements to restrict to information. Now, if you get your outside counsel lawyer working for you, and they work for a thousand other clients. They've also got requirements in a different way to keep that information private and to restrict access to that information um, with the general public, but also between um, the work that you're doing with them and their other clients that they've got within the law firm. So it's this really interesting kind of combination. That is fascinating. So <clears throat> see if I can tie this together for our listeners a bit more, uh, because we oftentimes on the show talk about privacy in terms of data subjects. That's the, the legal terminology also that's used by some of the, the privacy regulations that exist today, GDPR, CCPA, etc. But corporate personhood sounds kind of more what you're talking about, right? That legal notion that a corporation has some legal rights and responsibilities, the same that are enjoyed by, quote, unquote, natural persons. Is that, is that kind of where you're going with this? Well, in a way, it's actually it's the subject matter of the information that's different. So the way I sort of at a low grade think about privacy, that privacy is information usually about people. Um, uh, this is this is different. This may include information about people, and we'll talk about that a bit when we talk about Europe and Germany in particular. But actually, it's the nature of the invention, 
that's got to be held confidential. And that's why I use the term confidentiality. It's really similar in a lot of ways um, to the concepts you're talking about in terms of privacy. Um, it has the same kinds of thresholds too in terms of, look, um, you know, why do we protect privacy so much? Because we're trying to stop harm that's um, been proven to occur when your privacy is breached. The same thing occurs in my area of, of work. Why do we want to maintain confidentiality, restrict access? Because we, we're trying to prevent harm because there's a value associated with that information. That's a good transition into that, that second topic. In the U.S., concerns about info getting into or getting to other people like uh, Cuba or China uh, the example that you used offline was the Patriot Exile. Can we, the can Patriot we dive Exile. into that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so look, um, if I just back back and sort of walk you through what happens with a patent, I told you that you know you come up with a great idea. Um, I'm going to use I'm going to use some sort of warfare because it'll make sense in a minute. You come up with a fantastic, God forbid, chemical weapon that's going to you know apparently be amazing. To be able to file a patent, you need to have held that information confidential. So you've got that threshold to start off with. Now when you start to file a patent, remember I told you that it was this gradual, basically the release of the confidentiality and the release of the information. The first entity that that's got to go to is the US Patent Office. So you've got to tell them what the application, what your patent is about. And as you go through the process of getting your patent granted, you have to gradually give them more and more information until you've been able to describe the meets and bounds of your invention. So basically, you need to be able to describe how you make your new weapon. And somebody needs to be able to, to, be able to follow that. So by the end of this process, all of that information on how to make your weapon will be there in the patent application. Now, when you file it with the patent office here in the US, only certain information will be publicly disclosable from the, from the early stage. And what will happen is that once you file it, the general public will be able to see some of the information. They'll be able to see that I was an inventor and that the company that I work for has now filed a patent. Well, actually, a patent application has been filed and my rights as the inventor have been granted across to my company. It's usually how it happens, a patent assignee. And they'll be able to see the general framework of the kind of patent it is. So we're sort of going to know that I'm doing a, I'm, I, you know, I've been working on weapons technology. As it goes through, as I said, more and more information needs to be given to what are called patent examiners at the Patent and Trademark Office. And that information sits basically within the US Department of Commerce as they go through to determine it. That information has been, has been given only to the, trademark, the Patent Office. However, here's the rub. With most patent applications now, you're not just filing a US patent application. You're not just working with technology or people or um, buyers or, or anything just within the United States. Inherently, the way we all work is, is global. So most patent applications have a single home application and then a full family of foreign applications. And it gets quite complex where you're filing around the world for countries that you think you might want protection in and you might want defensive protection. So where you might want to actually use it and license it, but we also want to make sure that nobody else is able to file for that. Well, now I've got to start to release information about my patent and it becomes problematic. 
And here's where this really interesting sort of um, intersection between the nature of patterns, i.e. you're slowly releasing information about them, and the nature of some really serious concerns in the US are. And this is the concept of what's called export control. And again, I'm going to give you some sort of broad strokes, but basically there's um, two pieces of legislation you need to worry about. One is IT, what's called ITAR, I-T-A-R, which is the International Traffic in Arms Act. Had to look that up. Didn't actually know that. Delta it for years, didn't know what it was that. But basically it's to prevent information um, and uh, proliferation of information about weapons and arms um, and, and other matters of national defence. And then the second regulation um, that we're concerned about is something called the Export Administration Regulation. Um, and that basically is concerned with restricting information that's important to um, uh, commerce and the commerce and security of the United States. That's where it gets really interesting. What it basically says is that certain information about certain topics can't go to certain places. Now, use the example of Cuba because I had an example years ago where an entity in Pittsburgh was trying to send um, used X-ray machines from the hospitals in Pittsburgh as an aid organisation to Cuba. They were prevented by this by some of the combination of these export control regulations, but the same thing would happen if I was then filing for patent protection as well. So you're going to be, uh, Cuba's not a good example because for a long time we've not been able to file direct applications into Cuba, but China would be a good example, yeah, um, where you have to really be careful of releasing the information um, when it's needed to get protection but uh, not before you're, you're allowed to do so by the US government. So what practically happens is they know that to get patent protection in China, you're going to have to go and release certain information. What you're given under the Patent Act is something called um, an export license. And so basically what they say is we're going to go through the patent application and check the information and then we'll grant an export license, which means that you can then file that foreign patent application in China. But you can see this interweaving, right, of the rights and duties of a patent holder or a, 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 an applicant uh, uh, sort of married, I guess, so the individual rights there against the um, the rights or the, the concerns of the nation as concerned against a, with sort of a, a business's ability and natural desire to want to do business and to need to protect their intellectual property around the world. And it, 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 gets, it gets quite complex, hence people like me and software like mine where we can <laughs> you know, help do that. That's fascinating. So you'll actually be interested to know uh, there's probably a, a decent number of our listeners that are already familiar with ITAR um, because it has long intersected in the technology space, uh, namely around encryption uh, and uh, what we're allowed to to export around encryption. And because I am a geek and I have nothing better to do with my time on the weekends, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, NIST, as some of you know, there was actually a recent update to the ITAR regulation that states something to the effect that unclassified defense technical data that was secured from end to end with encryption that is no longer under the, 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 the purview of ITAR. 
Why do I know this, you ask? Because <laughs> we actually have a number of customers that have similar, they're either in the technology space or they're in the defense space, and they have similar types of, of, uh, of documents and controls, et cetera, within the environment that they turn to us to be able to protect. Um, and that's actually a very interesting rule change because what it said before was, so there's different levels of classification of information. And for those of you following home, uh, following along at home, you'll know that, you know, we, we talk, we don't talk a lot about the technical bits and bytes of what Spirian does, but um, we, we can find, locate, classify, sensitive data, et cetera. And so the classification of that information as outlined by the defense department, there's a level called unclassified defense technical data, which as the name kind of suggests, like it's technical data, but it's unclassified. So people can share it. Um, and when it was encrypted end to end, it fell under the purview of ITAR. The rule change, and I don't really know why it is actually, however, still spec stipulates that the release of the information that controls it. Uh, so what is it? I think it's something like the uh, the actual, the, the transfer of access information, that's what it is, of access information. Um, that still falls under IDAR. What does that mean? It means the encryption key. So only the encryption keys are still controlled under that, but somehow the full end-to-end -end encryption of unclassified documents isn't. God love me, I would not want to have to follow this stuff for a day job. So it's good that we have people like you doing this. I only happen to know that because again, I geek out on some of these things a little bit, but I couldn't make that my day job. I told you at the start of this, you and I need to go and sit on a beach somewhere with a long, tall drink and, and catch up on this. You, you have officially out-geeked me. It's fantastic. But you're, you're actually exactly into where some of the nuances in my industry have really, uh, where, where industry expectations or needs have started to sort of push at the meets and bounds of some of these restrictions. Everybody wants to make sure that they are doing the right thing. However, it's really complicated sometimes to figure out what that means, as you've just oh. said. But it's also really difficult when expectations of how businesses are run have also changed. So, look, 50 years ago, how did we develop weapons and other complex technology? In a lab somewhere in one place, and, and that's what happened. Um, I mean, I can count numerous big businesses. GE is a good example where most of their research and development is done offshore. Well, how does GE as an entity ensure where is where is that uh, where's that R and D done? Where does that information belong? How does that work? How does that work in reverse? Now there are processes and, and plenty of ways to be able to handle it, so that's fine. My example has been really interesting um, in the US um, since two thousand and eight with the economic downturn and the relook at how legal organisations work together. My area was pre pre hit pretty hard. Um, 2008 meant that a lot of intellectual property lawyers and paralegals and docketing, you know, data management stuff lost their jobs or had to reshift and remove around. Well, patenting didn't stop and trademarks didn't stop. So actually there's been this huge pickup of filing and, and management and firms and organisations have struggled a little bit with how do we get all of this work done as quickly as possible oh, but our organisations now are asking us to really basically maintain costs, often at pre-2008 rates. So what happened? Outsourcing happened. Mm -hmm. And from a bit of a slow start, it's really ramped up to be an expected norm in our industry, meaning that quite often the actual inputting of data 
associated with patent portfolios and trademark portfolios may be done offshore, Costa Rica, India, Philippines. I know law firms that use those. And now it raises the issues exactly about um, access keys and codes and um, are you accessing software offshore? Are you not? Uh, you know, there's some some finagling of the edges of these for people's benefits, but but we're really sort of seeing an example of the way we do business is no longer around sending documents in a box to another place. It's around all of us accessing information. Now imagine how that happens where quite naturally what the industry is doing is now creating links between official data sources and internal data sources. So where is the release of that information happening? Where's the transfer happening? It's philosophically and theoretically actually quite fascinating, um, but it's this kind of concern that we've got to make sure that we are um, really thinking about um, in the work that I do. You call um, those, edges, those, those edges, those yeah. edges are jagged. Yes. <laughs> Well, you guys definitely nerd nerd me out. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm nerdy in other ways, but uh, you kind of go over my head there. But can we transition a little bit into customers not wanting to move from, this seems to be a very common thing, um, especially nowadays because everything is all about the cloud, all about um, not the physical, um, you know, host of a data source. But, you know, let's talk about, customers not wanting to move from an on-prem solution to a hosted data source and the challenge with that. Yeah. Um, I'd love to dive into that. Absolutely. Yeah. So look, I arrived in the States right at the sort of the, the virgin area of, of really developing technology in this area. And so prior to the early 2000s, 100% of this information was kept on paper literally people were updating paper files and, and trying to find ways of managing all of this complex information. Naturally, how do you do that more effectively? You bring in a fancy calendar. Because of the confidentiality concerns and actually some privacy concerns associated with inventor names, um, there were always some concerns around how that information would be held. So for a long time, and it was possible, it was very easy, most of these systems were absolutely managed on-prem. Um, that's fine, although it really isn't fine and it has caused some problems. Um, I uh, worked for a law firm in the mid-teens, mid-2000s sometime, um, when Hurricane Sandy hit and um, the firm was up in Midtown, New York. Um, most of New York was underwater, including where the access cables went and including the big bundle of cables that went into our law firm. We were lucky. We did have an on-prem uh, on install of our software, but we also managed to have it duplicated and replicated into other places. So we were okay, but a lot of other firms and businesses in New York over that next week were not okay because their literal systems were down. So we've got this sort of tug and pull of, look, on-prem is expensive and time-consuming and, frankly, who's got the space for it anyway, anymore for some of these really complicated systems? With um, the threat and the pressure of, dare I say it, the unknown, what I see is quite often a lot of people saying um, nothing, anything other than on-prem is not safe, um, therefore we can't do it, and especially in law firms, we can't do it because our clients wouldn't let us. 
Um, and so it, there's been a slowness to doing it. Interestingly, some of the big standard providers have actually forced this matter because they've gone from being on-prem with an option to being either hosted or SaaS to actually forcing this. One of the providers in particular has gone through and slowly rolled all of their customers from on-prem to, a, a I think it's a cloud-based or it's certainly hosted um, option, therefore forcing customers to have to think, do we stay with the solution that we know or do we take a risk with this great unknown of, of anything else? What I what I find is that that is actually, it's actually changing very, very quickly. I mean, there are mm-hmm. a whole lot of terrible things associated with COVID, but let's just say it's forced all of us to have to figure out what to do very, very quickly. Most law firms you know, have not returned to normal. Um, most law firms have had to figure out how to manage their businesses with their people working from home. How do you do that when something is on-prem? Um I was telling you before, I've got an example. I was talking to a law firm just a few days ago and we were on the camera and I, I said to him, oh, where are you? And he said, I'm in the office. And I said, oh, pan around. How many people are there and what have you got going on? And he was basically by himself in the office. And we'd been talking about whether or not he was moving from our old only on-prem solution to um, our hosted solution and our web access solution only. And they were vehemently, you know, holding their ground, saying that they had some concerns. And I said to him, hey, uh, Bob, where's Kathy, your doctor? And he said, she's at home. And I said, hey, how's the information getting into your docket at the moment? Heart pounding, thinking, oh, no, I'm going <laughs> to really mess with this relationship. But he said, huh, didn't think about that. And really what we ended up talking about was, you know, they, they could not maintain their business if Kathy was not maintaining that database. She couldn't come into the office. So they'd had to find a workaround. They actually, as he found out, managed to do it using a VPN access, which is one way of doing it, although she said she couldn't keep doing it this way and could we please solve this problem for her? Phew, problem solved. Um, but, but this is certainly it. Um, I think one of the other fascinating things has been you know, we have this conversation day after day with lawyers working in law firms where they say, no, we can't, we have to have this information internally on our own servers. Um, and then when you poke a little bit at it, you know, you say, why is that? Oh, because you're concerned about security. Well, do you have a backup? What is your contingency plan? What is your emergency strategy? And, you know, my example of, of Hurricane Sandy. Mm-hmm. Secondly, which we find just fascinating is, well, where are they actually, a lot of these people actually doing business? Well, they're doing it in their Outlook email. And that Outlook email has got all of the, inf- well, most of the information that's sitting in that database that they're so concerned about. Do you have a protection strategy for your email? Oh. And then when you actually talk about what's often of most concern to them, their financials, you say, how are you running your trust accounts, your bank accounts for your clients, for the law firm? How are you accessing your financial data and, you know, moving things around in your accounts? And they say, oh, look, you know, I've got this wonderful Bank of America app and here I am. And you say, oh, okay. So what's okay for you for your financial and for, you know, for your, for your banking on behalf of your clients for your trust accounts is not okay for the rest of it. And I think there's quite often, you guys must deal with this all the time, just uh, people don't always understand what it means. What's the difference between hosted, between cloud? 
what is the difference between um, an Azure or um, an AWS solution and something else? And, and what really is going on at the moment inside their business? And is that any safer or any less secure than the alternative? And then what is the benefit that they might get? Um, I did have a quick chat last night with our, our CTO who has a lot of experience in this. So we were talking about sort of this whole scenario because mm-hmm. we bring him to come and talk about this with clients when they're concerned about it. And and he, he, he was really interesting. He confirmed well, what we often say, which is that the breaches that we most often see in our industry are due to humans. They're due to people leaving information somewhere. They're due to people leaving something open, not inherently due to information being accessed from the outside with a technical data breach. So at the end of the day, if it really comes down to people, it might not matter whether it's hosted or whether it's on-prem, you've still got that same risk, but there are benefits associated with not having that information on-prem as well. Um, So, yeah, look, a very topical discussion, something that um, comes up every day in my job. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. The the similarities between lawyers and the security professionals used to be we were both the parties of no and that the conversation you're having is how to empower the business to get to yes. Because everything you just said is not only spot on, I, I feel like too many people just go based on kind of feelings and not facts. And yeah. it is that it is that human factor that is more often than not the challenge and the problem. And sometimes it's a human factor in that someone misconfigured a security control. Uh, There's not always a dark shadowy figure doing something nefarious, although sometimes there is, Um, in fact, oftentimes there is, but (laughs) those are not by and large, all of the the, the larger challenges we face. So that's, that's a fascinating analogy. I appreciate that. Yeah. Very much. Thank you for for going into that. Um, I know you touched on the online banking, which is a great example. Let's let's talk about personal privacy in corporate jurisdictions. I know we talked yeah. a little bit about this offline, and I'd love to dive into that. Yeah. Look. So, look. I've done this big broad stroke thing, sort of saying that this is really about um, information and confidentiality, but there is definitely a privacy aspect associated with this. And it's really interesting because it's, again, at this point where our U.S. law um, may differ from the law in other jurisdictions and it's something that we have to be constantly thinking to ask. The big example we have is in Germany. Um, you know, Germany always been fairly forward thinking around individual privacy. And this has actually had a really interesting asp- uh, impact on, on our industry. Remember I spoke about the fact that actually patent applications get filed in the name of individuals, the, mm-hmm. the inventors. So if I invented something, it would be Jane Durden, the inventor, with my address on the application. And then immediately upon the application being filed, that patent application would then be assigned across to my employer and then transfers over and, and goes off and goes. However, if you are managing a portfolio and filing it, because it's really the company that's filing it, it's not me, they've got to have access to information because that's what's going to go on the patent impl- uh, application. But then what they need to do, um, what we hear our German uh, customers asking us to do, is to separate out that information. It cannot be retained and it cannot be stored 
um, within the system. So again, we've got this really interesting dichotomy of a business trying to make things easier and smoother. How would you do that? You put two data sources together. In this case, because of the privacy regulations around personal privacy information, that then has to be uh, decoupled as soon as the application goes through so that that information is not stored within the patent system. Um, and, you know, that's that's very important. That's very different from what we can do and um, people usually want us to do here in the US where, um, you know, US corporation, Intel um, works on basically giving uh uh, awards back and it's usually financial awards back to inventors based on how far an idea proceeds to patent well you'd want your information to be stored because you want intel to be writing back and sending you a check at some point in the future so very different systems very different demands and it makes um, our job really really interesting and you have to forever be stopping and asking a lot of these questions around what else don't we know? What else is different from where I've worked beforehand? Um, what else, what are the constraints on you that, that we need to build into a system? And then how do we do that um, without making a different system for each jurisdiction, which we don't want to do? So, you know, lots of, lots of interesting things there. And look, a lot of my job too is associated with reaching out to people in the industry, so marketing to people. We've had to respond to um, the increased restrictions or in increased protection on people's private information, um, meaning that we've had to all go through and make sure that we've changed the way that we've used, um, you know, email lists and contact lists for people so that they now have to, to approve that you can send them marketing material. Things like this, you know, really, really impact the way you run a business. Gabe, you look like you have something to say. Yeah, okay. I was thinking about the part where uh, <laughs> of all the patents I've filed with all the companies I've worked for, none of them sending me checks back. I'm just, I'm just trying to figure <laughs> out how to, how to sell. Where's his money? You should have been hanging in the gin joints, and you would have, you know, got greater return on investment from that. Yeah, part. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Not wrong. <laughs> so, I'm kind of curious. You know, from your point of view, where where have you seen a lot of companies, or at least where is your company headed when it comes to the direction of privacy? Do you see that increasing all across the board, especially in the United States, when it comes to the importance of a privacy program for a company? Interesting. Again, if we pull back, I, I need to be careful that I separate out your correct use of privacy and mine around confidence. I'm sure very much concerned about confidentiality, but you've just hit on really exactly where my job is. So my job is to look at the strategy for our company moving forward and how our product will work. Where I said that we serve both the inventors or the innovation companies, the Apples, the Microsofts, Intels of the mm -hmm. world, and the law firms. So inherently, you know, I think the average across the industry is that 50% of actual patentable, the, the work associated with managing patents is actually done by outside counsel law firms. So law firms are not going away and yeah. they're, they're, they're definitely needed in this industry. So what we, what we really need to be looking at are the really interesting complex webs of relationships that actually exist between clients and their law firms. Now, at the moment, what happens is a client says, file something, the law firm says, yep, 
got it, I'll do it, I'll file it, goes away and files it, comes back and then reports it back. It's very, very much, you know, just this series of clicks and pushes and there's there's not, there's not there's so much room for improvement. Add on to that the complexity in our industry and just the pure numbers of these transactions and you've got this really complex web and just massive volume of individual pieces of correspondence and sets of data and information. Now, what if you could actually make that easier by connecting the organisations? So instead of your client having a system and you as the law firm having a system to track the information, where you've now got to make sure that both of those information, both of those systems have the same information, i.e., more than double the work. What if you could connect them? What if you could have one system that actually everybody accessed? Well, now you're thinking and talking in a different way. And I know in the industry there are sort of two streams there. There's the stream that says, let's raise it up and have everyone access a single system. Okay. Now it's a matter of security protocols and controls and access rights. And that feels fairly complex. And it feels like a whole lot of people like you guys are going to be very involved in looking at the, um, at the access rights associated with that kind of a protocol. The second way of doing it is to actually think about connecting systems together. If you've got systems that are based on the same protocol, if you're using a system that basically maps and tracks data in this system as it does in this system, what if you could click them together so that when like information was being passed, you're really just passing information? So what you're doing there is you're keeping two separate systems, so therefore keeping and maintaining the security and confidentiality of that data, and you're merely allowing permissions to share the information associated with different kinds of activities. And that's the sort of, you know, you're sitting on the beach thinking about um, privacy, and that's what... I'm sitting on a boat thinking about actually, Gabe, um, you know, how, how do we do that so that there's a benefit without an abject threat or without, without a danger associated with it that um, there will be the, you know, you'll be allowing too much access, you won't be allowing the right access to the right people. That's, that's really um, where, where our industry is going at the moment um, and a lot of schools of thought and uh, a, a lot of activity and thinking. Which is always good. Yeah. yeah. It's always positive. Gabe, you have anything to add there? No, I don't. That's uh, not fascinating and very insightful view on it and wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah, agreed. And before we move on to, you know, wrapping things up, is there anything that we didn't bring up um, that you wanted to discuss or just bring to the table for our listeners to learn from anything that uh, we didn't touch on? One thing I just wanted to make clear, right, so that when you, I, I don't want anyone to listen to this and be discouraged about going to speak to an attorney um, about releasing information associated with a patentable idea and a concept to an attorney. Um, lawyers, uh, you don't necessarily need to issue a non-disclosure agreement when you're working with a lawyer. It's usually covered by their bar association um, ethical um, uh, responsibilities associated with where they are barred. Um, but with anybody else, just being aware of the fact that when you're dealing with intellectual property, it's about giving value to and monetizing the um 
the, the efforts of your brain, whether it's your creative brain, your inventive brain or otherwise. And so just be cautious, be careful, make sure you understand, go and get some advice. Going and speaking to a lawyer is usually the best way of being able to do that because they'll be able to guide you in how and when to release the information um, and and to whom. Um, but you don't need to worry when you do speak to a lawyer underneath, under a, um, an engagement ag- agreement you know, that that's the nature of the relationship that uh, you'll be able to release that information to them um, in in confidence. Awesome. Well, super super helpful and just really eye opening because we've, we haven't had a guest like you you before in the in the field that you're in. We've had plenty of uh, lawyers, but uh, not no. in this sense. It's been great. Um, yeah, I don't know what took so long, quite frankly. This was fabulous. I don't know. I mean, you could have called us. Yeah, that could have been him. Yeah. You, know. <laughs> you, just, you didn't hire Marissa early enough. And, and as soon as you did, look what happened. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> um, so let's go into our last segment. This is a fun segment. I, you know, On Privacy Please, we like to get a little more private Uh-oh. and and ask some personal questions to learn more about you. So let's. I'm going to go ahead and fire them away. But I actually just thought of one because I know that you're from Australia. How long did you live there for? I see. That's that's the privacy. I'll have to tell you my age. Um, <laughs> no, I lived there until I was twenty six, oh, and wow. then left okay. and went to Asia, and then from Asia I came to the states. So about four years ago. Got it. Move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Gabe. So yeah, there you go. So my question on that one is: What is the most? What is the scariest? animal or like insect or because i know australia is known for for all of all of them yes (laughs) there's got to be one though that's terrifying that you might have come face to face with and i gotta know if if uh if you obviously you survived so 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 everything we say on here is in the utmost of privacy right if i release anything it's fine so little (laughs) secret is that we like to make television programs that we that we actually show americans to get them really scared (laughs) about Australia to, to to stop everyone from here just wanting to move across to Australia and go and live. So look, um, the scariest the scariest animal, oh absolutely would be an emu. Emu um, thing yeah. like an ostrich, very pecky, and they like sandwiches. And so when I was a little kid, I'd go to the and then they run free in the zoo because they're supposed to be sort of you know nice things mm-hmm. that you can engage with. So I've got this distinct memory of being chased around the zoo by this blooming great bird trying to get my sandwich. Well, they're the fastest birds, aren't they? They're the um, fastest birds land on birds. land. Probably faster yeah. than me because I must have been only about five, I think. It's, you know, it's deep so in my psyche. You've just brought it all up again. On last week's <laughs> episode, I mentioned the great emu war and I asked everyone to go look it up. So that's uh, a I did. That's a fabulous. All right. So now I have to put that in the notes because I did look it up and it's terrifying. It is terrifying. By the way, the the correct answer was drop bear. Drop bear is the correct answer. (laughs) I can tell you about drop bears and I can tell you about sidewinders, but um, I've been telling my daughter is um, 14 and she gets to, uh, she gets to have Australian citizenship by virtue of me. And we've been, I've been telling her that for her citizenship (laughs) test, there are going to be all kinds of questions. She needs to name things like vegetables and pronounce them properly. So no tomatoes, lots of tomatoes. Indeed. And <laughs> she needs to be able to do things like say, you know, what are the um, 
what are the living habits of drop bears <laughs> like that and she, as a 14 year old she's googling on her phone <laughs> there's, there's, there's no winning that one no so. very smart so what is your favorite curse word now you don't have to say it we we can if it's you know or you can write it down and show us but i'm curious no, I'm not- so uh, I'm going to give you a real answer. And uh, So in, in Australia, you can walk into a business meeting and say something like, you can bleep this out, right? I, I, I could. I could cut okay. it out. I could leave it it's in. Fine. You could say, oh, bloody hell, it's hot out there or something like that. That would be perfectly fine. I learned very quickly that that is not perfectly fine in the United States. <laughs> and I worked in the South and um, lived in North Carolina for a period of time and discovered that I can't even say it. It's been sort of imprinted on me to not say it, but saying D-A-M-N is is a very bad thing in the South. And it's made me try to find fun alternative words that I could use instead. So, you know, I sort of like the idea of walking in and hitting my elbow and saying cauliflower or something like that and having people be completely confused, but it's way safer. That's true. Okay. that's. A, I mean, that's not that hard of a word, but I, I guess... I don't really not understand the South part of not saying it, but. Uh, well, it's all of the, the, uh, the, the, the very, it's the word I'm looking for. The South in the U.S. is kind of known for its, mm, it's not quite poshness. I don't know. There's a word in there I'm looking for and I can't quite find it. That, I think there was some, it. I think there were some religious overtones associated. There's a lot with of religious well, so yeah. yeah. It's yeah. just yeah. safe for me, for, for me to walk away and yeah. uh, say cauliflower. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Um, so what, uh, I don't want to get graphic here, but if you were on death row, yeah. what would your last meal be? <laughs> Favorite question. I love this question. Dead easy. I know exactly what it is. Drop it. I would like, not drop this, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> lamb shank casserole. My mother makes it. Do you know what a lamb shank is? It's now popular yep. here. But mm-hmm. cheap, cheap Mediterranean, right? Well, Australian too. We like we like yeah. eating our lamb young. So that kind of uh, in a casserole, so you, you braise it for a long time, but my mum does it with sort of basically uh, scalloped potatoes along the top at the same time. So you get this whole thing. Oh, so good. When I go home, that's what's waiting for me. I Anything like potatoes. It. Anything potatoes and some kind of red meat. Meat and potato, which is really funny because it's not how I – I'm on death row. I'm allowed to eat whatever I want. Um, I would like I'd like a pavlova because I'm going full Australian here, and I'd like. What what is that? I I don't know what that is. Oh, pavlova! So it's named after a woman Anna Pavlova, who is a ballet dancer, and it is a big. You know what a meringue is with egg whites and sugar. Seen it? You just didn't know that's what it was called. So it's a baby with cream in the middle, and then usually fruit. Um, or if you were lucky when I was okay. growing up, this kind of candy called a, a, a mint mint crisp, which had sort of oh, mint deliciousness in the middle of it. it was very exotic. She's so got like <laughs> sliced on top of it. And I, I don't know how else to describe it like that. But fun fact, <laughs> most of the lamb that you can buy in the U.S. is actually it's from, from Australia. Australia. It's from or New Australia. Zealand. Yeah. yeah I didn't know that. Fun yeah. fact, you heard it here on Privacy Please. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And, and right. did I did I say good red wine to go with that whole thing? Because there needs to be good I, red wine. I assume that was a given. Yeah, yeah. That, 
Yeah. It's Friday and that's a red wine is calling me right now, a Cabernet. Um, <laughs> so that will be happening some point today or, you know, Good soon. Good to know. You've got not quite, not quite the shirt I'd choose for a Cabernet, but knowing it sounds like you might have a few. You'll find one. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Okay. This one's fun. It, so there's a zombie apocalypse, obviously. Well, it's 2020. So that's about right. Right. Um, it's actually probably past two for saying that, but who would be three celebrities that you would choose to be on your team to survive? Ooh. Oh, I'd like Hassan Minhaj yeah, because okay. he's smart and he knows things. Um, oh, who else do I want? It has to be a celebrity. Okay. Um, I can be anybody you want. No, because then she's going to have to say something like her husband. No, yeah, no, right, right, right. Yeah, it got to be celebrity. <laughs> Got to be celebrity. Mm-hmm. Can I have George Clooney just because I'd sort of like to go down at the end of the world with George Clooney. That's dead or alive. Just dead or alive for the last one. Dead or alive for the last one. Dead right. or alive Good. for the last one. Oh, yes. Uh, Someone that's dead. Um, well, hold on. Um, I'm trying to be strategic here. Can you not see how my brain is working? I'm not <laughs> and you can't say Steve Irwin just for the record. Uh, I. Good. <laughs> That was an instant no. <laughs> I'm going to kick myself because after I get off, I'm going to email him. I'm going, no, 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 I've got a much better answer. Replace my answer for the zombie apocalypse with this. Nope, so, no take backs. No take no, backs. No take backs. Nope. Um, I will have, um, I'll have Grace Kelly. Because I'm going, she's already dead. So I can use her to kind of lead all the zombies. You know, she's pretty. Stead, she can lead all the zombies across into the distance. Quick and fast mm-hmm. on her feet. She can walk backwards in high heels. That's, I'm, I <laughs> doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> do do? That's my end of day's team. <laughs> That's it. There you go. Uh, a couple more for you. So I think we already got it, but what's your favorite drink? Uh, well, uh, well, red wine is good on certain days. Today... It's going to be an Oktoberfest beer from the local brewery up the road. Nice. Uh, Fairwinds. Fair Tons um, of orange have, slices and, well, not orange slices, but. No, it's, it's going October. to be. October. Yeah. October, yeah. Full brew. But actually I've become a new uh, convert to the mint julep this summer. Somebody started us. We've got this online group of us that get together and uh, friend, two of my friends are from Kentucky. So great bourbon. I've been making the mint simple syrup. You put those two ingredients and some water and some ice on a boat and life is very good. (laughs) Very good. And last question here. What is your most used emoji? Um, (laughs) My most used emoji uh, as has a reason it's it's the little tiger, the little tiger face. Okay. Um, I'm I'm looking I'm looking, you know, I think I'm looking pretty good today. Um, COVID has brought out the complete lack of desire to straighten my hair, do anything else, and when I don't look like this, apparently, I look <laughs> like a lion. There is no lion's mane, so everybody refers to me with this tiger emoji. So I get. I get a tiger about once a day from somebody, especially if they, they see awesome. me when I'm out. That's nice. awesome. But 
But the tiger, that's a good animal anyways. So Exactly. I can handle that. Amazing. Well, I, I think your dogs are calling you, but just want to see. Yeah. This, is, this is why we roll. So no <laughs> up, the dog's telling me. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to come on the show with us and, and share your insights. Really, really eye-opening and, and just really, really cool how the intersection with so many things align with privacy. And uh, just thank you uh, for what you do and for coming on the show. Gabe? Yeah. Jane, thank you very much. I, it's not often I get to geek out in a little ITAR. So that, that was, that was fun. That was fun. Hopefully our guests really enjoyed that as well. So uh, we should have <laughs> you back like, again. The feeling was very mutual, Gabe. It, it was good. The second podcast will be called the Geek Fest. And we'll That's just, sort of, you know. <laughs> hopefully we'll all be on a beach somewhere with some kind of drink. Cause exactly. yeah, I'm ready for that. Well, thank you again so much. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Have a great one. Take Thanks, care. I just wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week and to all of our amazing guests for coming on. I know that there are millions of other shows and it means the world to have you with us on this journey. We are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week. If you like the show, tell a friend, have them tell their friends, and then make maybe make some new friends along the way uh, so we can continue to spread the word and keep learning together. Let's protect what matters most. And by the way, DJ... Can you go ahead and drop that outro beat and keep it classy? We'll see y'all next week.